He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. It is good to be together. This morning we're in Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 4, where Jesus is declared to be the eternal Son of God, risen from the dead by the power of the Father. We're going to look at Romans 1 to 4, but uh, there are some other passages in Romans as Paul unpacks what this means in the rest of the letter. So we'll be pulling some of those other texts in to understand what Paul is saying here. A few other scriptures. Hear then the word of God. Paul, who is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered to you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of coming this morning to join our voices and our hearts in worship of a risen Christ. We thank you for what you have done and what you have given in Jesus. We pray that even now, As we sit at your feet to hear you speak, we ask that you would cause your word to live. That you would speak it afresh to our hearts, the truth and the power of what Christ has done and what it means for us. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is a lot of debate about uh, the identity of Jesus, who he is, uh, what he did, what actually happened Uh, What all of that means, it's still debated, and I don't even just mean out there in the world, that we live in a time where even inside what we might, is the so-called church, uh, this is debated, and that this is not necessarily believed. Serene Jones, uh, I believe she is still the president of Union Theological Seminary, she at least was in the last few years, Uh, she is, this seminary is where you prepare people for the ministry. Right? It's where you teach them all that they need to do to do ministry and to preach the gospel. Serene Jones, a president of Union Theological Seminary, said, I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent being. That is a fabrication. That does amount to me is to say, I don't believe in God. At least not the biblical God, whatever you do believe in. When she was asked the question, what happens when we die? Her answer was, I don't know. There might be something, there may be nothing. She's preparing other people. She's at the head of an institution who are going to pastor Christian churches. She rejects the idea of a physical resurrection and an empty tomb. She said the empty tomb, it's simply a symbol of the triumph of love, but that he didn't actually rise from the dead. In the United States, in the West, in, in this part of the world, is becoming more and more post-Christian, rejecting the you know, essential biblical doctrines and morality that have been historic Orthodox Christianity for thousands of years. It's slowly being canceled in the outside culture, and it's slowly being canceled in some branches, the more liberal branches, of what we would call the church although I think we need to rescind that name. The resurrection, the Bible, Paul, even as we look at this text here this morning, and one reason we're looking at this one is how Paul puts the resurrection as an essential 
aspect of the gospel and of saving faith, of what it means to be a Christian. And so what I'm saying is this, is that Resurrection Sunday, Easter, is serious business because it is a matter of eternal life and death. And I believe it is at the heart of the gospel that we believed in are saved. And when we subtract out of it the resurrection, we actually undo the gospel and the hope of salvation. Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as a, as a servant of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God as a, as a preacher of the gospel is his calling. He's a missionary. And at the heart of the gospel he's preaching, as he makes known in these verses and throughout Romans and all of his writings, at the heart of the gospel is the resurrection, the physical, historical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. In verse 2, he tells us it was promised by the prophets. He's telling us that this gospel is the fulfillment and the promise of all the ages, that the, the ancient promises of the prophets uh, through the ages is fulfilled in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Savior. And so too, he says that he promised it beforehand through the prophets in the Scriptures and this gospel of God in the end of verse 1, which is promised beforehand by the prophets in verse 2, is concerning, in verse 3, his Son. The gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus. And his Son, Jesus, in verse 4, he goes on to say, is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the resurrection according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is the, the son here, the eternal son. He's declared to be the eternal son of God, the only son of God, the unique son of God. It's what we know, the verse that everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his unique son. Right? There's only one son in this sense. He's the eternal son of God. He is God the Son, He is God Himself. God so loved the world that He gave this only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. It's clear from verse 4 that this Son, this gospel concerning His Son, that Jesus' resurrection is central to the gospel that Paul preaches. Apart from the gospel of God, he was set apart for the gospel concerning his son, declared, shown to be, manifested as the eternal son of God by the Spirit, raising him from the dead. It's his vindication in one sense. He's shown to be, he's manifested to be who he said he is, son of God. And so he, in a sense, is vindicated, but it's so much more than his vindication. It's our justification. It's our salvation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17, he said, if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection isn't true, if he did not come out of the grave, if he died and he's still dead, if the resurrection, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching, he says, is in vain. It's useless. You're wasting your time, and not just my preaching, but your faith 
he says, is in vain. How central to the gospel, right, to our, the gospel we believe in are saved is the resurrection that if he is not raised, you're wasting your time. It falls like a house of cards. He goes on in verse 17 to say much more clearly, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still liable for the punishment that belongs to our sin. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we all die. Right? If death is extinction, if death is the end of it, there's no accountability for what we do in this life. There's no more life. There's nothing beyond it. If, if the dead be not, if Christ be not raised, if the dead be not raised, then you may as well go live it up and get the most out of it that you can right now because that's it. There's no more. See, the Christian faith, the true Christian, the biblical Christian recognizes the physical life, death, and resurrection as a foundational, not just truth, but reality on which the Christian faith and hope is built. It's essential to the gospel and to saving faith. So we'll back up in verse 3 where it tells us that this gospel of God is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That according to the flesh, he's born of a woman, he's born of Mary. Mary is in David's royal line. So according to the flesh, he's a son of David in the royal line of the kings of Israel. And that sentence is what we celebrate at Christmas. That God, the eternal Son of God was born as a man, that he was incarnate, that he came to the earth. And we said on Friday in the Good Friday service that this work of Christ, what Christ has done, that is all of his work is like one whole cloth. You cannot separate pieces out. It's all together. The incarnation, the, the, the eternal Son of God becoming a man and living a perfect life, living the life that we're supposed to live but fail to live every day, being, you know, living the fulfilling all righteousness, being perfectly obedient to the Father, obeying all of the law, so that, that, he's a, that God is incarnate. He lives his perfect life, and is that life, that righteous life that he offers up on the cross, and there to bear the eternal penalty against our sin and his own perfect body, and then to be raised again and to ascend even into heaven. It's all one work. And they take out any piece and it falls apart. If he is, not the, he is not the incarnate Son of God, then it all falls apart. If he doesn't live and fulfill the law on our behalf for our forgiveness, a righteousness that could be credited to us, it all falls apart. Without the cross, it falls apart. Without the resurrection, the eternal Son of God became a man descended from David according to the flesh. You know, all, almost unanimously now, the, the historians, both secular and Christian, almost unanimously, whether you're a believer or not, believe, know, accept that Jesus Christ was a real person who lived in Jerusalem at that time and was crucified. That's a, that's a matter of basic historical fact. I saw something on TV yesterday. They're showing all kinds of stuff. It was not sympathetic to biblical truth and the miracles, but they had no problem with the idea that Jesus was, in fact, a real man who was crucified at that time. 
First of all, you can't do away with all of the Christian. You may not believe it means what we, you know, it says that it means, but there's an enormous amount of historical data showing us that he was this man, both in the scripture and outside, both from Jewish and Roman secular sources. Acknowledge it. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian with no love for Christians, uh, not a believer, not sympathetic, he's writing history and he is describing the condemnation of a man named James. The Jewish Sanhedrin had him and he was being condemned. And he records the history simply by identifying the man as the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Simple fact, right? This is recorded in Matthew 13 and Mark 6 that Jesus had brothers, that Mary had children after his birth from Joseph, and he had brothers, and one of them was James. It's recorded in the scripture. We know this. Here, a Jewish historian simply marks this brother James as the brother of Jesus, who was the so-called Christ. Tacitus was a Roman historian reporting just about the turn of that first century, just after 100, just after John wrote his uh, revelation and his gospel, is my understanding. And so not far along the way, he's just writing the history of the Roman Empire to that point in the last 100 years. And as he records it, he is, he is noting back in the 60s when Nero accused the Christians, he needed a scapegoat, and he blamed the Christians for starting the fire that burnt Rome. And he said Nero fastened the guilt on a class of, that were hated for their abominations. They were called Christians by the populace. Christus, the Romanized name, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. Christ suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Simple fact. Romans acknowledge it. The Jews acknowledge it. There's all the data is there. Everybody agrees that he was born of Mary and descended from David, that he, he lived and he died. And the issue is then not, not that he died, the fact that he died on a Roman cross, but what does it mean and what did it accomplish, if anything? And that's where the Scripture steps in to interpret that if God was doing something in history, somebody's going to have to tell us what it was. And they can look on and see the event happen, but it takes a scripture to step in and interpret that event and to give us a God's eye view of what was going on. Why does the death of Jesus change the world? And it literally changed the course of the world, not the Middle East, not Palestine, not this part of that part. It literally changed the course of human history. What happened? What happened then that turned their world upside down that it's still turning ours? Yes, he was crucified, but why? It's called the gospel of God in verse 1 as he ends verse 1. This is the gospel of God. And it's called the gospel of God because it's about what God has done. What God has done in history for us and for our salvation. And so it is the gospel of God concerning his son. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's what God has done. And in sending his son into the world to save us. In 1 Peter 2.24, interpreting what happened from a God's eye view according to the scripture when Jesus died on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins. Your sin, if your faith is in Christ. He bore our sin in his body. Not part of it, not a little bit of it. All of it in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. Our, our sin and its debt would be paid. Because it says when he 
bore our sins. He became sin for us. He bore the penalty of our sins so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness, to righteousness. By his wounds, by what he did on the cross, we are healed. That is, we are forgiven. My friends, the gospel only makes sense, and it will only make sense to you if you can see and if you understand, both in the world around us and in your own heart, if we can see the righteousness of God's judgment on sin, that there is sin. Sin is the idea of rebellion against God. It's everything that's not pleasing to God. It's everything that's against the fabric of his design, the way he designed the world, the way he designed us in his own image, according to his own purposes and plans. And sin is anything that goes contrary to that, that disobeys his laws, it goes contrary to the fabric of his creation, and is against his, not like him, is his holiness. It's an offense to his holiness and who he is. My friends, if you can see that there is a judgment that all of this is wrong. When you look at the world, look at every part of the world. And what is going on is so wrong. And if you can look at your own heart and every time you look in the mirror and to see and to understand your anger, your pride, your lust, your selfishness, your self-centeredness, your meanness, your all the different, you know, you just make the list, all the ways that we Don't keep the commandments and keep his laws. All the ways that we're just wrong. A sinful rebellion against a holy God. Romans 3.23 says it this way, pulling it in. It says, all have sinned. All have done that. All of us fall short of the glory of God. That is, we fall short of what God is like, and therefore we fall short of his heaven. And we don't deserve his heaven. All have sinned and we've fallen short of it. In fact, Romans 6.23 goes on and says, the wages of sin is death. That all have sinned and we've fallen short of that heaven. In fact, we've not just not earned heaven, but we have earned something else. The wages of our sin and our rebellion against him, he says, is death. See, if you know this is true, if you think the Bible is true and telling us the truth, you think that that God is in fact communicating to us something we need to know about ourselves, then I have good news for you. Because if you believe that all that is true, I have good news for you. Right? The gospel is all about this. How, as we just read, all of our sin, he bore our sin. All of that. Not part of it, but all of it that separates us from God and earns the wages. He bore in his own body on the cross. And puts it to death. Bears its penalty and exhausts the justice of God against our sin in our place. He suffered God's wrath. Paid the penalty and put aside. So that, as John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him might not perish. Might not bear the wages of our sin, right? Might not continue to fall short of his glory. That all he says, he sent his son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have an eternal life. That life in the presence of God that we all, if you believe in God, long for, hope for. Faith is believing in Jesus. Talk a lot about it, believing in Jesus, but believing in him according to the scriptures, according to verse 3, believing that Jesus is the eternal son of God and the savior of sinners who died for me and for my 
forgiveness. Faith is to trust in him and not myself, to believe that what he did, he did for me, that he bore my sin and that he took away my penalty so that I could be made righteous and that I would not perish and that his life is mine. It's to believe all that and to accept and trust in Christ as the one who can bring it to me. But how can we know? How can we know that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what the Bible says that he did on the cross and elsewhere? And the answer the scripture gives us is because the Father raised him from the dead. He was declared, manifest, showed in verse 4 to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was crucified in humility, in weakness, but he was raised in power according to the spirit of holiness. He was raised victorious. He was raised vindicated. He was declared, he was publicly, manifestly shown to be who he said he was. And God himself is testifying to the identity of his son by the resurrection from the dead. He shows him, declares him to be the truth of the incarnation, that he is who he said he was, that he is the eternal son of God, sent by the Father, and that we know that that is true because the Father manifested and declared and showed it to be true in the resurrection from the dead. He is who he said he is. The Father testifies to it. It's not the first time. He testified again and again. If you remember, his ministry opened with his baptism, and the heavens opened, and God declared, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Every time he performed a miracle, the father was saying, this is my beloved son. Jesus said he did all things by the power of the father. And here at the end, he is saying the same thing. The resurrection is the father saying, this is my beloved son. He was declared to be the son of God in the resurrection. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everything he said is true. All the things that he promised, he is able to do. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And it says in verse 4 that he was raised in power. He was raised victorious according, in verse 4, to the Spirit of holiness. So the Holy Spirit raises the Holy Son of God to the holy presence of the Father. And we need to understand that no one else had ever, ever been able to enter the holy presence. In the history of the world, the Bible is very clear to look on his holiness is to die. It's like we're darkness, and it's like darkness. What happens when you turn the light on? It's gone. It doesn't stand in the presence of light. No one had stand, stood in his presence, the living presence of the holy God. No one else had ever been holy. And however you think of yourself, you should recognize I'm not that. No one ever deserved to stand in his presence. No one could survive being in his presence because he is light and in him is no darkness at all. So no one had ever been in his presence this way. In the scripture, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says it this way, no one is righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of that glory. 
and there are wages to it. So no one has ever been in the presence of the holy God, no human being, until now, right? Except Jesus Christ, who was holy in the sense that he fulfilled all righteousness. He was human as we were supposed to be. He lived the life that we're supposed to live. He obeyed the law that we're supposed to obey, that he pleased God in ways that we don't. He fulfills all righteousness, obeys all the law, and loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the first one who actually deserves to stand in the presence of God without a savior, without a mediator, with no help at all. He stands. He is raised according to the spirit of holiness. He was raised to the Father's presence where he deserves to be and can safely stand in his own holiness. Scripture says it a number of ways, many ways. Hebrews 14 says it this way. He was one, Jesus was one, who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He was, in fact, incarnate as a, as a son of Mary and a son of David and lived this life and was tempted and did walk through all the stuff we walked through. But where Adam failed, he succeeds. Where you fail, he succeeds. That he, he obeys and he fulfills and he loves like we should. He was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. He lived the life you and I failed to live. And then he took that life, that perfect, holy life, and in it bore our sins, the penalty of our sins he bore in himself. He had no debt to pay. I can't pay for your sins because i got to pay my debt. The wages of my sin is my debt. I can't die for you, but here's one who has no debt. And so in his holy person, he bears the wrath of God against our sin to fully satisfy God's justice on our behalf so that we may be forgiven. And then he rises, it says, victorious from the grave. The wages of sin is death. But that verse goes on to say, but. Right? See, the wages of sin is death. You will, we will never earn it. We will never get there Right? The wages of sin is death, but if we're ever going to stand in that presence, it'll have to be a gift. Right? The free gift of God is that eternal life that we're talking about and that we want, that Jesus achieved. The free gift of God is the eternal life it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. It can be gifted to us. How could Jesus win this life for us? By his resurrection from the dead in power. Where he rises to the presence of God and sits as our mediator. On our behalf, Romans 8 says, who is it that will condemn? This is the question. Who has the power to condemn you? Who has the power to bring a charge against you? We're told in the scripture that Jesus has been made judge, appointed judge of all things. And so who is going to judge us? Who has the power to condemn us for the wages of our sin? Well, Jesus does, if nobody else does. But what does it say? It says, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus? He's the one who died for us. More than that, he was raised for us. Who is at the right hand, even now, at the right hand of the Father, and is even now, indeed, interceding for us. Jesus didn't resuscitate to this life. Like Lazarus was raised from the dead to this life, he finished out his mortal life and died. 
He was resuscitated to this life. Jesus is not resuscitated to this life. Jesus is raised on the other side of the grave. He goes into the grave, but he comes out the other side into the eternal life, into the presence of God. He is raised into that life eternal that we all long for. And so the scripture says in 6.9, Romans 6.9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has victory over him, no longer has dominion over him. Jesus conquered death. He rose on the other side of death, never to die again. Death no longer has dominion. Jesus is the first then to go into the grave and come out the other side into the holy presence of the Father. He's the first to rise from the dead into eternal life. But my friends, he is not the last. He will not be the last. And this is the good news. This is the gospel according to the resurrection. If he be not raised, we're not going to be raised. There's no pathway. There's no way. He has made a way through the grave to the other side. He is the hope of the resurrection. If he be not raised, then our faith is futile. We're still in our sins, and we're not getting out. He will not be the last. The Bible calls Jesus the first fruits from among the dead. And he's the first one. He was sent to make the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he was sent to, to make a way to the other side, into the presence of God, where sinful, fallen human beings who deserve the wages of their sin can somehow be made righteous and safe and accepted in his presence. Romans 8, 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Scripture is very clear. If your faith is in Christ, then you have been filled with His Spirit, that, that the Spirit has taken up residence, that we are born again, that you have been given a new life in Christ. So if you're a Christian, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. By One way you can, defi- you can define Christian is it's a person who has put their trust in Christ and in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Right? That's who we are. And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to give life to our mortal bodies, our mortal bodies, our physical bodies. It's not, again, some spiritual thing. They want to eject the whole idea of a physical resurrection, a historical resurrection, a real resurrection. It must be just some spiritual ephemeral thing on the side. But it's not. He says he's going to give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You will be raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. As Jesus rose to eternal life, he says, we may also. Abraham Kuyper says that it was not the cross, as important as the cross is, as a part of that total fabric of his work and necessary It was not the cross, but the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that you are free. Yes, he died for your sins, but it is only because of the resurrection, children of the kingdom, that you are justified before God. He uses the illustration in that same passage, talking about, um, you know, how a river can become swollen after a big heavy rain, and you have a river that swells up, it's bigger than it normally is, and the water is a swirling torrent, it's just a powerful 
force in itself, and people get stuck in these floodwaters. And so he says it's, it's like somebody who falls into this swirling torrent of water, and somebody sees it happen and goes, goes in to get them. Now, if that person who goes in to get them gets caught in the swirling waters and gets sucked down into the depths and doesn't come out, they're both lost. But if he goes down into the waters and gets the other guy by the hand and is able to come back out of the waters, pulling the other guy behind him, then both are saved, right? So Christ goes down, in a sense, into our eternal death and bears our sin, but it is in the resurrection that he defeats death, conquers death, and rises from the grave. He was justified, so to speak, and he is able then, if he's got a hold of your hand, to bring you with him. And that's what the scripture says, my friend. See, my friends, most religions teach us that you are saved, that you are justified before God uh, by the good things that you do, right? You just need to try harder. You just need to be a good person, right? You need to, you know, well, better than that, right? Better than you're doing right now, right? You're going to have to work harder. You need to be good if you're going to want to stand in the presence of a holy God. And a lot of religions, a lot of the religion is about trying hard and following the rules and getting there. There's a, in Islam, there's an angel on one shoulder writing down the good things you do, and on the left, an angel writing down the bad things you do, and they're in these books, and they're keeping track, and on that day, there's, they're going to be thrown on the scales of justice, and you better hope the good one outweighs the bad one. And I don't know if it's like a 51%, like how, just how, how good does it got to be? According to the scriptures, 51% ain't going to do it anyway. It's 100% or no percent. What does light have to do with darkness? Even 50% dark, even 49% darkness. There's no, there's no being good enough. My friends, that's the bad news. That's the bad news I have for you this morning. You will never be good enough to stand in the presence of eternal holy light. Then no matter how hard we try, we can't get out of the wages. We can't get out from underneath the weight of who we are and what we've done. The eternal, if we're ever going to get out of it, it has to be the, the, the gift of God, the eternal life for those who believe, he says, but the gift of God is eternal life. And this is the thing that many people have a hard time believing too. That it, What do you mean? It's just a gift. All, all I have to do is trust in Jesus to have done all of it for me already, to have lived the life I failed to live and die the death I deserved to die and, and go into the death that, that, that was to be mine and to rise into eternal life where I would never go. And all I need to do is trust and embrace him as my Savior and, and that God will credit all that to me. Romans 4, verses 24 and 5, where it says that righteousness, that right standing with God, being justified, being saved, righteousness, he said, will be counted to you, will be credited to you, will be given to you who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead and was, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. If you believe that, he says, believe in the one. He was delivered up on the cross for our sins. He bore our sins in his own body. And he was raised for our justification, conquering sin, so that we might be forgiven. And that's at the heart of it. In faith in Christ, we are forgiven for our sins. And his righteousness is gifted to us so that he could take us by the hand and pull us through the grave to the other side with him. We live in an incredibly 
increasingly secular age. There's never been a culture in the history of the world as secular as ours. It's not always been Christian. I'm not saying that. But people believed, and they, they always believed in more. They believed in life after death. Even if you're an Egyptian, you're building pyramids, you know, and, and putting stuff in there for the afterlife. Like, cultures across the world always believe there's more. There's this, this, this consciousness that I've been given can't be snuffed out forever. It doesn't, it doesn't seem right. We long for life. We long for something more. And every culture in the history of the world has had some form of belief, but in the, the West, in our time, the increasing number of folks who believe that we have no future, who believe there is no God, and more and more in this secular age, this idea that death is the end and then we rot, and that our consciousness is snuffed out, and that's it. There's no accountability, it doesn't matter, you know, this life, because there's no accountability, death is the end, the end is the end. You may as well eat, drink, and for tomorrow... There's nothing. And more and more, that is a, a common rising theme. This, you can see it in our generations that are coming up. People are looking at our children. Crazy things are going on in our children, in our schools, in all these places. They're like, what's going on? Well, they're being raised on nothing. They're being told there's nothing. There's no meaning to life. If there's no life after death, there's no accountability for anything in this life, then and life has no meaning. What's the point? Well, you, whatever you want it to be. There is none. And you can't raise a generation on nothing and expect something good. We are reaping the whirlwind of faithlessness and unbelief. And the question this morning for you is, do you believe that there is life after death? That you were made for something more? And the life that you crave, not in the body that's getting older and failing, but in a new one. The resurrection, they were told the resurrection body, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown, you know, a a mortal body, it's raised a spiritual body. Do you long for something more? Do you believe this morning that there is life after death, there's something more, and that God has made a way? Romans 8, 10, 9 and 10 says this, if you will confess with your mouth what verse 4 here is telling us, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he said he is and who the Father testifies to his being in the resurrection, that he is the eternal Son of God. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will believe, he says in your heart, that God did raise him from the dead. There is that accomplishment that becomes our hope. If you believe he is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do, what does he say? You will be saved. For the heart of the one believes and is justified, made right with God, made holy and able to stand in his presence and with your mouth you confess the Lord Jesus as your own, that what he did, he did for me. And he says we are saved. And so the question is, if you haven't yet, will you put your faith in this Jesus? This is the hope of the world. Again, not just this part of the world or that part of the world, but it spans the globe. There are over 2 billion Christians on the face of the planet. Will you put your faith in the Lord Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior who what he did, he did it for you. And then if you will trust him, 
you will live. That's what he says in John 14, 19. He says, because I live, you also will live. Whosoever believes in me will not perish, but will have that everlasting life. This resurrection is the victorious heart of the gospel. It's the hope of an eternal life. Won by Christ who is the first to travel through the grave and to rise into that life. And it's the victorious heart of what he has already done physically and historically. What he has done is the foundation of our hope that we too might share that life. This victorious heart of the gospel, the resurrection, is what Paul preaches. It's what you and I, if you are a Christian, have believed. It's what we proclaim and we must never lose sight of, no matter how the world is canceling everything else, not let them cancel the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on which our hope is built. He was declared to be the eternal Son of God by His resurrection in power, and because He lives, you and I may live. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave us as you found us, which is suffering under the weight of the wages of our sin, but you so loved us that you sent your only Son, the eternal Son of God, that he might bear our sin in his own body, that he might take our punishment, our guilt, our penalty, that we may be forgiven. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his current interceding for us as our Savior and our Mediator. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who have not yet put their faith in him, that they would, that they would trust him, to believe that he is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God, that he has done what he has said he would do, and that he has conquered death for us. I pray that, Father, as those who put their faith and trust in him would come to a new and living understanding of what it means to know and love and walk with you, not only all our days, but into an eternal life. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.